This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, July 17th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Jake Neer in Detroit, in for Kellen Walker. Today on the show, after two years of delays, Tesla starts production on the Cybertruck. Ford slashes F-150 Lightning prices, and new vehicle inventories keep rising. Plus, we'll talk about why the UAW's new president is skipping all the usual ceremonial handshakes with Detroit 3 automakers as contract talks begin. Sean Fain isn't having none of that. (laughs) He said he doesn't want to shake the hands of the CEOs until they come to him with a good deal. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Almost four years after CEO Elon Musk first unveiled Tesla's debut pickup, the automaker has built its first Cybertruck at its plant in Austin, Texas. Tesla shared the development over the weekend on Twitter, which Musk owns. When Musk first showed a prototype of the wedge-shaped truck in November 2019, the plan was for production to start two years later. Musk has tempered expectations for how quickly Tesla will ramp up production, He told shareholders at the company's annual meeting in May that the Cybertruck's radical design poses challenges. When asked in April this year for updated specs and pricing, Musk demurred, saying Tesla would save that information for a Cybertruck handover event he hoped to stage around the end of the third quarter. Ford also has some news about its debut electric truck. The automaker is lowering prices for its F-150 Lightning electric pickups by about six dollars to $10,000, depending on the trim. Ford says lower material costs and higher production capacity are making the price cuts possible. It said today that the cheapest Lightning model, the commercial-focused Pro Trim, will now start at $52,000, including shipping. That's still 25% more expensive than the truck was when it launched in April of last year. Meanwhile, Ford once again had the most recalls of any automaker through the first half of the year. According to new data from NHTSA, Ford issued 31 recalls covering more than 4.1 million vehicles in the U.S. through June. They affected a broad spectrum of vehicle types. In the same six-month period in 2022, Ford also topped the list with 44 recalls, covering more than 6.7 million vehicles. The largest recall so far this year involved a callback of nearly 1.3 million older model Fusion and Lincoln MKZ vehicles for rupturing front brake hoses. The new report comes as the automaker continues to work on improving quality issues, particularly on its high-profile vehicles. And U.S. new vehicle inventory is continuing its steady climb. Cox Automotive estimates that unsold inventory was more than 1.9 million vehicles in June. That's a 53-day supply and up 75% from the same time last year. It was up slightly from a month earlier by about 25,000 vehicles. Cox says there was a 103-day supply of EVs, making it the only segment other than ultra-luxury and high-end luxury to top the century mark, though full-size cars were close at 99 days. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, Cybertruck is finally coming. 
How much of an actual impact do you think this will have on this segment? You know, we'll see what kind of impact it has on the market. I would expect it to be significant. This is a super hyped vehicle. It's one of the most anticipated electric vehicles, really, of this entire new EV era. What's the actual price going to be like? How many can they make? You know, it certainly didn't seem like a coincidence that Ford cut the price of the F-150 Lightning the day after Cybertruck production began. So clearly the, you know, EV pickup truck battles are just getting started. They're going to be perhaps even more intense than the full-size truck battles that we've seen over the past decades because now we have Tesla. We have a fourth major U.S. player. Um, you know, we'll see if Toyota and Nissan try to chase this uh, market the way they did with full-size pickups, but it's going to have a significant impact. It's going to be very interesting, this important development for the progress of the EV industry. Well, clearly early days, we'll keep an eye on it for sure. Coming up, UAW talks are kicking off. Automotive News reporter Michael Martinez joins us to preview the talks and talk about Union President Sean Fain's unconventional approach. That's next on Daily Drive. Your service check-in process sets the tone for your customer's entire visit. Do your customers wait longer than five minutes to check in for service? Are your advisors presenting upsells to every customer every time? How often is the opportunity for a trade appraisal missed? When your service drive gets busy, these inefficiencies directly impact revenue. Give your customers the option to handle the entire check-in process themselves, from appointment scheduling through final confirmation in under two minutes. Customers have the experience they want while selling themselves which means your advisors are freed up to focus on profit-producing activities. It's a win-win for CSI and your revenue. Introducing a smarter service lean, GoMoto is the self-service kiosk designed to grow your business. If you're ready to start increasing revenue, improving the customer experience, and maximizing service efficiency today, visit GoMoto.com. That's G-O-M-O-T-O ocom Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Jake Neer. One of the few certainties about this year's contract talks between the UAW and the Detroit Three is that they will be far from routine. With two months to go before the packs expire, union leaders are bucking tradition and employing new tactics to win meaningful gains for members in what President Sean Fain has called this generation's defining moment. Last week, Fain ditched a decades-old handshake tradition with company CEOs in favor of rank-and-file meet-and-greets, and he suggested that he won't follow the usual formula of picking a lead company, but will instead target and potentially strike all three at once. Michael Martinez is covering the talks for us at Automotive News. I reached him at his home office in Detroit. Michael Martinez, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. So uh, here we are at the start of UAW Talks. We've both been through this uh, several times in our careers here in Detroit. Pretty uh, standard opening salvos? Yeah, nothing to see here. Nothing really to talk much <laughs> about. Uh, obviously, no, this is very different than what we've seen in the recent past. I think Sean Fain as the president and the new UAW leadership is really reinforcing what they've been saying for months now, that you know, they're the new kids on the block, but you need to take them seriously. And they're not going to do things the same way that they've been done in the past 
because it's led to what they believe are concessionary contracts and company friendly contracts. And they think their members deserve more. So for the folks who maybe were on vacation last week <laughs> when the uh, handshake ceremonies would have been happening, how how different were things? What happened last week that would was different from in a normal year? So typically in mid-July of a contract year, the union will get together with the Detroit three CEOs at three separate events, and it'll be a big photo op. All the media will be there. They'll literally sit across a table from the CEOs and the heads of the bargaining teams for the automakers, and they'll each exchange pleasantries, and they'll stand up and reach across that table and shake each other's hand for that photo op. And you know, you could argue it's maybe useless, maybe it's outlived its time, but it was always sort of the ceremonial start, both sides sort of acknowledging they have common ground, they're mutually dependent on each other, but they have some differences and they plan to work them out. Sean Fain isn't having none of that. <laughs> he said he doesn't want to shake the hands of the CEOs until they come to him with a good deal. And he's been riding them pretty hard for a while now. He's been decrying their multi-million dollar salaries compared to their employees. So his take is it would be a little bit of hypocrisy if he would talk a tough game and then just act all cozy with them like union leaders have done in the past. So instead, he decided to have his own photo op at three separate events at three different assembly plants, one for Ford, Stellantis, and GM, all on the same day and do a meet and greet with workers because he is still trying to get his name out there. Remember, he barely won this presidency. The The vote totals were extremely low. He had something like 7% support of total membership. So he's still trying to prove to them that he's there to hear their concerns and he's there to negotiate a good contract for them. Yeah. I mean, it really makes me made me think that maybe what was smart about that, aside from avoiding some of the the painful optics of his predecessors, is that idea of trying to you know build some relations, build uh, his own credibility with the rank and file, because he got enough votes to become president. But when they get a contract, when he does get a tentative agreement, he's got to get those members to believe that he really fought for them and try to get them to vote to ratify. That That is, of course, it's a two-step process for the president. Exactly. And he needs everybody on the same page about what to expect and what they should ultimately vote to ratify. I think Sean Fain's done a remarkable job in the three, four months he's been president of staying very on message. And I'm talking like Alan Mulally level, only spouting the pre-approved lines and not deviating from it whatsoever. If you listen to his Facebook lives, if you listen to any of his appearances at the plants, he says a lot of the same thing. That's super frustrating for journalists, but I think it's very important for the membership because in past years, they haven't had a, a clearly defined message, a clearly defined objective. And not only for the membership, but really for the, the wider public in general, I think Sean Fain's trying to ride this wave of support for unionism and unions that's happening across the country. And I think he's just trying to get in the zeitgeist the, the basic message that these are greedy corporations that don't want to give their members a fair share and we deserve our fair share. So if you see us go out on strike, everybody needs to support us and pressure these companies. So you mentioned the, the possibility of a strike. You know, typically 
maybe not in July, but closer to Labor Day, the union will pick a, they used to call them a, a, a strike target or a target company. I think for a, for a couple generations there, they preferred to call them the lead negotiating partner uh, or some sort of uh, gentler semantics uh, like that. What's the thinking on who they might strike, who, the, who their target is likely to be? Well, Sean Fain said last week that the target is all three of them. Now, I don't know if that is formal official union policy that will carry over into mid-September or if that's, again, just him talking a big game and kind of what he needs to do at this point. There's multiple scenarios that could play out here by September 14th when these things expire. I think it's completely possible that we see a strike of all three at once if he doesn't feel there's any meaningful progress being made with any of the companies you could see that. Now, the downside, obviously, is if you strike all the automakers at one time, your strike fund would deplete rapidly. In theory, the union couldn't hold out as long. They have $800 plus million in a strike fund. If you start doing the math, you could probably calculate exactly how many weeks that'll last when you're paying members 500 bucks a week. Now, there is an alternative where he could do a wildcat strike, just target a few plants at each automaker and effectively shut down the industry, maybe with four or five plants. That could be a potential where he could hold out for a long time and say, hey, whoever has the best deal, come to us first and let's end this. Be the hero. Or you could go the traditional way and pick a strike target. If you do that scenario, I think it would be hard to bet against Stellantis going first. They've been pretty profitable compared to the other two, especially I think in the first quarter, they even had better numbers. A lot of Fane's leadership group comes from that Stellantis department. There's a lot of bad blood there from years ago with Dennis Williams and some of the corruption that started in the FCA department, Ally Cabelli, that, that sort of thing. And they really have sort of a, a rallying cry around the closing of Belvedere Assembly that they want to reverse and they want to focus the members attention on. But honestly, I mean, if we're if we're gaming all this out, I could give you reasons to pick Ford and GM as well. But I think if they go the traditional route, Stellantis would be that best option. Yeah, it's a it's a tough call, but it seems like between the the health of Stellantis and the, the history of the leadership and that Sean Fain himself came up through the predecessors of Stellantis. Uh, so that seems like the most likely scenario. But also, I mean, Carlos Tavares has never been through UAW talks before. Uh, I'm not sure Mark Stewart, uh, his uh, COO for North America, has really been through them before. So, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, risk on on either side. I mean, we've seen uh, you cover Ford a lot. They've made uh, some cuts and Jim Farley's, you know, not terribly happy with their efficiency on the white collar side, but they've had really good relations with their with the UAW. So lots of interesting dynamics at play. So it sounds like the UAW wants everything. What are their key priorities? I think their key priority is rewinding the clock back to 2007 or before, uh, because honestly, a lot of what they want is what they lost in that time during the Great Recession. They want the elimination of the two-tier wage system, right? That pays workers different rates, uh, depending on whether they come in now or they've, they've been a veteran employee. Currently, new hires, there's about an eight-year wage progression to get them to that top rate. They want to eliminate that. 
prior to the bankruptcies, prior to the Great Recession, there was, I believe, 90 days to top wage. And Sean Fain said that's what he wants. He wants to bring that back. They want pensions for every employee, which is something they had before. Now there's a mix of some folks get pensions. There's a 401k with some generous employee contributions, but the union wants pensions. They want guaranteed retirement security for all their members. They want to do away with temporary workers and not set a cap, just do away with them, not have to worry about that and, and worry about paying temporary workers less and not having that type of security. And they want COLA back, which is interesting, that cost of living adjustment that was dropped a decade or so ago. The automakers would argue that their workers have gotten more based on the way things are structured today with lucrative profit sharing checks that go out every year based on the health of the companies, as well as lump sum bonuses or inflation bonuses that come to them every year, they'd be making more than if they just had a straight cost of living adjustment. Union says, well, we want everything. We want both of those things. Well, and they certainly they feel like if they didn't have a four-year contract that they signed completed you know, months before COVID started, that they probably would have gotten bigger raises along with the profit sharing or whatever else. But that's a tough ask, uh, especially because the automakers know their profits aren't going to be as high as they were the past two or three years. And they still have countless billions that they need to invest in electrification and getting EVs profitable. Before we wrap up here, I mean, what is what is the Detroit 3 want? Do they just want peace? They want people to go to work and make the trucks uh, and make the EVs so they can get going before uh, Toyota gets back on their feet or what? Well, out of everything uh, as unusual as this has been so far, I think the one thing that has remained constant is the, the stance of the automakers, which is just what you laid out. They want flexibility. They want to maintain competitiveness, both with the traditional transplant automakers that don't employ union labor, as well as some of the new EV startups. And they want to be able to continue to invest those billions into producing these new technologies. The companies, I think, for, based off of conversations that I've had so far, I think they'd be willing. I think they understand that their employees probably deserve pretty significant raises for everything that's happened and for everything that they do. So there may be a, an area of agreement there. I think they're going to push back hard on a lot of what the union's asking for, specifically COLA, again, because they would argue that their members have not lost out the way their bonuses and profit sharing payments are structured right now. They need to maintain competitiveness, right? They, they spend a lot. They spend over a billion dollars on healthcare for their employees. The, the union workers have pretty nice gold-plated healthcare plans where they're paying significantly less than, than the average American. So I think it's going to be a hard fight. You, you know, if you're just coming into this blind hearing the union's demands, yeah, they may sound reasonable, but I, I think the company is still going to push back on a lot of it. Well, and, and another one that I know is still a big concern for the companies is absenteeism and the way they can accommodate people missing work on Fridays and Mondays is to have temporary workers that they can call in on short notice. And unless the UAW is going to accept some sort of significant teeth on absenteeism policy that they haven't wanted in the past, that's going to be a hard one to win. And I think there's an important point to make on the, the temp situation. The companies have converted thousands and thousands of temporary workers to full-time status. Uh, at Ford, it's happened faster than what they agreed to in the 2019 contract and more 
than what they've agreed to in the 2019 contract. That contract also capped the number of temporary workers that could be employed by the companies. And they're all at or under that cap. Ford is significantly under that cap. Temps make up just about two to 3% of their total workforce. So there's progress that's been made in some of these areas over the years. And I think the union is just pushing maybe for more dramatic progress to be made. Well, we'll see uh, how they keep pushing and, and how it plays out. Mike Martinez, thanks so much for all your work covering this this week and, uh, of course, uh, in the months ahead. Should be a, a fun few months. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Jake Neer in for Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News journalists Audrey LaForest and Larry Velaquette for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on union negotiations, EV manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Cumerit CEO Tracy Price, who says a shortage of EV charger electricians could complicate upcoming rollouts. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.